this month's episode of the Fantasy Book of the Month podcast for September. My name is Katie. I am currently wearing a gray shirt. Next up is Dan. Hey, it's I'm Dan Evanson. I'm currently wearing like a sea green kind of thing. All right, next up we have Nick. Hey guys, I'm wearing a dark blue shirt and drinking a nice cup of black coffee. Gross, but next up we have Peter. Uh, hi there, I'm Peter. I'm also wearing clothes. Excellent. And Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm wearing a black shirt and not drinking anything because I'm a scrub. Okay. Go team. Treat, um, treat your voice with respect, everybody. Have some water, drink something. You know, lubricate your voice. Nothing so like hot coffee. Excellent. Hot coffee soothes the vocal cords. <laughs> Great. I'm also just drinking water in case we care. Yes, me too. Room temperature tap water. Mm-mm. We're so exciting. This is the most exciting we've ever been. So, uh, Katie, what is our theme this month? Well, thank you for asking, Peter. Our theme this month is war. Um, as we God, all know, it never changes and is good for nothing. So yeah. let's start with the reviews. Um, you let's start. start. With, wait, wait. You want to start wait. with the reviews? Oh, sorry. You're right. Katie, we should stick around for another 20 minutes. You're disrupting the whole <laughs> formula of this program. I got, I got some fun war facts. Okay, correction. I got one war, fun war fact. What's a fun war fact? It's not fun, but I have a fact. People die. And it's about war. Yes. People died to bring you this fact. <laughs> I found it on the New York Times. Thank you very much. Well, lay it on us. That in um, the last 3,400 uh, years, there's only been 268 years of peace. In how many years? No, the, the first number, not the second one. No one said there would be math years. in our war episode. So, I mean, that seems... Um, I mean, how, how, how do you... How do you come by that number? Yeah, like, I mean, relative peace? Like, I mean, talking about, like, my hometown? Because, like, that's been or pretty like useful. Or, like, total global I peace? I, th- I was assuming it was global global peace. That's why it's so small, because it wasn't um, taking into account um, individual countries. So, like, like... So no nation-on-nation combat. Well, it was, like, if there's a war somewhere going around, the wo- uh, around in the world, they counted that as a year of war instead of a year of peace. Thanks, New York Times. You're the you're just the best. <laughs> and that's eight percent of recorded history. You know, now that we're talking wow. about it, I'm that's a much more interesting fact that it's only eight <laughs> percent. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that I didn't think to read Piers Anthony's war book from the Incarnations of Immortality series for this. Because one of the, the characteristics of it as as written in the book is that there's a person who embodies and represents war and kind of manages war across the world. And then if at any point there is total global peace, I guess on a national or something scale, um, the, the, the embodiment of war is immediately retired. They just kind of, that's, whoops, their job's up, they're done. And next time any war breaks out, someone else needs to take, needs to take the job. But I'm surprised I didn't think of that book. Yeah, war is a pretty broad topic. It is. Can anyone think of any fantasy book that doesn't have aspects of war in it? Uh, Define aspects of, like, no fighting whatsoever or no 
organized militaristic fighting? I would say fighting because technically it's not oral or um, organized militaristic fighting. It's more of um, ongoing conflict. Yeah, Rachel, hmm. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, that, that is something that I was considering when we when we decided on this topic. Yeah, I would say all fantasy to some degree has elements of war, right? But there's really two uh, t- two ways to interpret it. Is, is the war part of the setting or is it actually part of the conflict in the book, right? Because there are some books where war is only just the backdrop. Uh, you have like the large military campaign fantasies and you just have the, what are people doing in this war-torn setting? <laughs> what, what did you guys come across when you, when you were thinking about this topic? I mean, even like... Harry Potter eventually gets into a war. Like the last book is almost entirely a war book, essentially. It's called the second wizarding war. I mean, it's a good point. So I've been quiet because you've shut me up while I try to think about, think uh, through my brain for a book, a fantasy book that doesn't have, I guess, any fighting in it at all. If that's the, the criterion. Or just, I mean, I, I'm having trouble even thinking of stuff that keeps it, that doesn't eventually get to a broader conflict, that doesn't take its conflict and uh, move it out beyond the bounds of the characters is eventually. Um, right. I asked my roommate this question, and her answer was uh, Slow Regarder Silent Things, the um, Patrick Rothfuss novella. Uh, I haven't read that one. I guess that's true. There's no actual war in those in those books. It just, like, I guess, there's like the personal war that Quoth has in the series, but yeah, slow regard for silent things is very much a uh, slice of life. A, a, well, but they clearly have war in the a background, kind of book, yeah. Right. Well, not in slow regard of silent things, I don't think. Like, I, I believe that I haven't seen it or I mean read it. In the series as a whole, there is some war in the backdrop, as well as a lot of war in the history, and the history of that world is pretty important to the story so yeah it also feels like the story is ramping up to a war with right. both because given uh given his assumed nickname of king killer yeah well and i i mean everyone's being uh recruited for soldiery in the uh the, the present time Correct. that we yeah. we see as a framing device clearly there's a war going on um and then you also in fantasy you also have the war of between humans and some of the creature like um, I'm Ruby's just on my mind in Ruby they have um, uh, hunters against or um, huntsmen against uh, the Grim which are constantly attacking humanity and stuff like that. I know when I was picking the book, I mean, what I really wanted to do was find a book that was about war simply because as a topic I don't typically like to read that. That type of book, you know, I was never a big like Tom Clancy fan mm-hmm. or anything like that. I think part of the conclusion that we're sort of coming to here, though, is that war is fundamentally tied to the fantasy genre to a degree. Yeah, I mean, it comes from the old, the old uh, stories that that were recorded. Most of those are About, you know, uh, conflict rot. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I I keep like that. Certainly seems to be the way our conversation is going, but I still disagree with the premise just that uh like there's it must be possible to have 
a yeah. fantasy novel that is not about fighting, that isn't set in a war or isn't about people to participating in war. And I mean, the more I, th I, I feel like I've read some, although more of those are going to have been young adult books at the oldest. Yeah, um, I was thinking through that too. And I was like, well, I read The Thief Lord recently. It's, you know, aimed at like 12 year olds, but there's no war in it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there has to be some. So I'm um, personally having a hard time thinking of any, but but I think there I think are some elements of of war that are pretty I'm I want to I want to try to break this down a little bit cuz this is to me at least a very interesting thing is what are the elements that fantasy takes from war or that it it a lot of authors feel it is necessary to include some element of war in their stories. Like, why? Why is that? Oh, so, why is it so common? Y yeah, yeah. Is I, it? I feel. I feel like it's easy because you can do world, a massive amount of world building with war. Well, I think it's easy, and that's why a lot of people go for it. I think. So, uh, I think fantasy genre has a reputation, same as science fiction and maybe horror. Uh, for being less character-driven, more plot-driven or world-driven. Um, and it's, it's kind of not damaging exactly. It's, it's, it's I think, related to why uh, those genres get sidelined uh, side as genre fiction instead of real literary fiction, why people don't give it as much uh, uh, respect, one might say. And... I think that war or or fighting between units, whether it's you know grand scale or small scale, uh, I think it's an easy way for authors to create conflict and drama and and drive a story to a climax and a and a, and a denouement, uh, which relieves them of the need to really build in character, not arcs. I'm not saying they're neglecting character, but it it. Uh, lowers the pressure on them to make everything internal, which is more the case in, I guess, what you would call modern con uh, contemporary literature. I think there's also a bit of an element of, w with fantasy in general, that there's this sort of goal, I think, or there, I think there's a sort of goal to make the story bigger, right? It's certainly a, a trend. We see a lot of it. Right, and it's like, it's, even fantasy in itself, if it's just like an exploration fantasy, it's it's, you know, it's really to make the world like bigger and full of wonder and awe. And so, war is sort of one of these ways to make just just make the story bigger in general, make the impact of the characters bigger. Uh, I was thinking like, um, it's also like it gives the reader power fantasies with um stuff like, that. like when the main character is fighting um this big bad thing, and you're you can be place yourself as the main character. And genre kind of builds on itself, right? People read fantasy when they're kids and then they grow up to be authors and want to write something, but you don't want to do less than what the people that came before you did. You want to build on it. You want to go higher and faster and stronger. And and so, you know, if you're reading war novels, you're reading Lord of the Rings as a kid, well, you want, you know, t 12, 15 uh, black riders and 70 orc armies instead of just two. <laughs> Bigger, faster, better, stronger. I got that in my head too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
like within my with the Sabriel, um, it's I guess I was thinking it, it's more like her against the concept of death or death itself. Because mm-hmm. um, I kind of picture uh, that picture of her is like the Avatar of the from, but in her world instead of like the Avatar in the Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's so, that's the conflict that drew you to that book. Also, it wasn't. I was very like emotionally drained at that point, and I wanted something that wasn't going to kill me. <laughs> so going back a little bit, when we were talking about how um, everyone wants to make theirs bigger, they want it to seem like it has more impact. Is that perhaps why we're getting so many apocalyptic type novels? Um, I also think there was a trend in YA fantasy around 2010 Ugh. of dystopians the, the, yeah the post-apocalypse yeah. dystopia teenagers have to break out of the mold and revolt. don't forget that they all have weird long names that they have shortened into something a little more normal yeah i was i was a teenager during that time and i read some of them and then they all got the same or trash <laughs> right i just there, there's the counter move to that which is some of the like grim dark fantasy which uh, focuses a lot on like very close personal stories, but they're told in, you know, very raw, brutal ways as opposed to the kind of big, you know, way pulled back war stories that focus on army movements and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, because I've been reading the Maslin series so far. I was taking a break because that series is long. And uh, I was thinking of comparing that between that and Stormlight. They're both military campaigns, but Stormlight seems less focused on the campaign, I guess. I don't know. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. Especially in the beginnings of stormlight where, where you're following Kaladin a lot and he's out on the campaign as a bridge man. You see that that war in many ways is a backdrop and it's really, the story is about the, the trials that he has to go through in order to become, uh, what he is to become. Right. Yes. And yeah. the the war, it's funny because the war in Stormlight starts out, again, like I said, as a backdrop where you're, they're fighting the, the Parshendi, but it sort of shifts from a backdrop of a war to the actual conflict when those Parshendi go through their transformation and sort of actually um, embody the evilness. Because at the beginning, they're both just kind of people, right? And then the, the, later in the Parshendi sort of... Um, actually become evil but yeah i mean i think you're 100 right like in those books uh you know there are almost no characters that are really coming along like hey this war is nonsense and we should stop i mean i think that's made pretty clear to the audience the reader but as far as the characters are concerned they're like man we love war and we can't wait for it to keep going war 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 well there's like because there's two main takes you take of war you have like the glorification i guess of war or like the profiting off the war or a a lore of righteousness or the common theme of war is hell right stormlight does a pretty good job of giving you both of those right where you know there's the aristocratic level you know where they're they're propping up their nation they're they're enriching themselves in the war and then there's kaladin's level where he's just trying to keep his friends alive well, and that's the thing. War isn't just about action and battle and death, right? I think in, in fantasy, it also gives a lot of insight into the politics of things. 
I feel like if as soon as you reach the the sort of national level conflict, if you're not including the politics, I mean, you're you are. Uh, I don't I don't want to say like doing a disservice to the reader, but I, I mean I don't know how you can not include it. Like there you're has to be a reason for the war. The 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 reason has to be you know righteous or unrighteous, uh, moral or, or immoral. Um, like there's just no choice at that point. I think I think that's why I don't like war novels because they do tend to get preachy in a lot of cases um of you know you know for the most part i think like war is no good and uh you know war serves no purpose kind of stuff and and in some cases you know you they forget the character uh and and the character kind of subsides to the message of what what uh what's going on and really good books and i one I picked for this week is going to be one of those uh, can do both. They hold on to the character's depth and then also have a message to give out on the topic of, of the war that goes on in its pages. Mentioning back to what you said about like, if you are going at a war on a national scale, then you definitely have to make mention of the politics of it. But um, I, I sort of made, you know, one little note here about, about how the size of the war sort of can affect the story whether it's like a local war like just like little little skirmishes between two factions or whether it's actually like a national war a civil war even um or even and a lot of these fantasy books nowadays a lot of them are doing like cosmic scale mm-hmm. we've seen a lot and i mean a lot of here's a war or a series of wars or just a fantasy novel where the the big conflict is going to impact everything it's really a global issue or cosmic issue or at the very least an international issue and i i myself have been drawing more and more toward uh, uh smaller more personal conflicts uh things that are important to a handful of people and uh i just i find that more interesting yeah i, I think one of the flaws that i've found with these like big cosmic um, wars or cosmic issues is that you know a story really can only focus on so many characters before it gets like overwhelming for the reader mm-hmm. and a war of that size is going to have so much going on like it's it, it's not believable to say this one character is going to save the universe you know what i mean because it's more right. than just one person who's doing things generally speaking yeah. right i mean so to, to sort of oversimplify to, to create something on a cosmic scale and then to oversimplify it down to one character is going to save everything is a little ridiculous yeah i mean chosen ones and uh <laughs> that sort of contrived singleness for a character can sometimes yeah feel heavy-handed and forced for sure and tiresome yeah because you see it you've seen it we've seen it so much especially after you get pretty widely read it's it is every but i mean there are there are places where i still love that like um uh my hero academia i think is probably the best one of those where it has a kind of chosen one single hero main character but uh and there is a sort of war going on behind the scenes uh which is mostly like heroes versus villains it's kind of a superhero story i mean it's very much a superhero story but um it does such a great job of focusing and unfocusing on its main character pulling back and looking at broader things and setting the stage but then 
when it's finally got something to save, that main character kind of steps back to the front and it really focuses on him and tells a great story around that character that then leads to the next, you know, pullback to talk about the next thing. It, it's one of my favorite fantasy superhero anything's going on right now. I think anytime, as long as you focus on the character or the small number of characters and really pay attention to them, then I think, you know, any, any size of story can be interesting, engaging, compelling, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's what I really like about Stormlight. There's, they have a, such a, uh, they have a large cast of characters, but each book so far has focused on uh, mainly focused on one character and told their story through um, like their backstory and you learn more about them in that specific book. Yeah, that is ab- the, the, the tactic he's using there is absolutely brilliant. Um, totally agree, especially especially that third one with oh my I, th- I think in the first two books, the character of Dalinar, I mean, not that he wasn't interesting, but no, he wasn't I just interesting. Never though. felt like he had the yeah. He, he just didn't have a lot of depth. To, he was he was this. He was almost like a a plot device more than he was a character. And then he just comes to life in that third one. It's a, it's incredible once once we actually like get behind his eyes. I think it was sort of on purpose too. He's supposed to be like this hardened war general, so you really can't see past that wall in the first two books. And yeah. it's only once he mm-hmm. sort of again, those books are all about a character going through trials to become what they're supposed to be. And so it's really the third book where Dalinar does that. And that's when you start to see through that wall and really see him as a character. And it's uh, it's it's just brilliant. The third book also has my, some of my favorite quotes, and they're uh, mostly from Dalinar. Yeah. Well, much as I love talking about a book I've never read, <laughs> um, maybe uh, is it time to start in on, on our little reviews? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess Peter's volunteering to go first. Take it away, Peter. That's what I heard. And away I go. Um, Well, despite my statement earlier that I prefer books where the stakes are not cataclysmic, big, determines the fate of the world, good versus evil sort of stuff, I read The Black Company by Glenn Cook. Um, which does in fact concern uh, a very stereotypical or traditional, I guess stereotypical is probably the wrong word, a very traditional uh, familiar seeming clash of the the armies of the good uh, gathering together to overthrow the uh, evil, uh, you know, the evil army run by the the big bad guy who's trying to take over the world. The interesting thing about uh, about the book is that it comes at it from the other side. Um, we aren't the good guys. We aren't attached to the good guys. Um, it also isn't a traditional anti-hero narrative. It really follows a small group of mercenaries, the uh, the titular Black Company, who are really they're all there because they've wanted to leave some some awful part of their life behind, um, and they take a contract with one of the lieutenants for the big bad guy, um, and they they know 
before very long at all. They know that they're on the bad side, but they're really just trying to get on in the world doing what they know how to do. Um, it is not, uh, it's not about the military clashes. It's about the perspective of the, the, the narrator, uh, who is not a fighter, um, and who is not, you know, a military person. He's the company, uh, doctor and the, uh, their chronicler, their analyst who, the one who records what goes on and, and leaves these records for the future members of the company. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating watching this, uh, very classic, uh, kind of overdone military clash of good versus evil trope from the perspective, not only of a, of a non-combatant, but a very small individual. He doesn't have magic powers. He's not an incredible warrior. He's, he just, he knows some things about making people not die after they get hurt. And he writes a lot. Um, maybe, maybe that's why I, uh, <laughs> why I, uh, really like reading the guy. Cause he just, he likes to write. Um, and it, it watches this clash from the, from not only the little person's point of view, but from the, the supposedly evil person's point of view. And we know that he's not evil. We know, uh, we know that despite the, the nature of this war, it's just more complicated than that. And in fact, it paints a good picture of war as a bunch of little people caught up in forces that they can't uh, influence, that they can barely influence at least, that they can't deal with, that are just, that treat them as ants because there are also these ancient evil or good who seem to just be just about as evil as the evil guys, wizards um, who lay waste to battlefields and the, the soldiers in the middle can do very little about it. Um, it seems very analogous to, uh, you know, soldiers in the trenches, uh, while the, the artillery uh, booms, echoes, uh, crashes around them. There's nothing they can do about that. If, if, a if a shell comes down next to you, you blow up. Um, all you can do is hope that your artillery quiets their artillery so that you can maybe make some headway or at least survive. Um, and it pulls the same thing into the fantasy genre and I, I'm very fond of it. Um, and I knew going in that at least someone else on this, uh, recording had, uh, some other strong opinions about it. So maybe we should hear from that. Well, Okay, it's me. It's me. Yeah, Damn, yeah it's, it's a surprise. A, I, I disagree. <laughs> uh, so I read this a long time ago, uh, probably a couple of years ago. But um, and I will agree with you. It does. It has really good things to do with with magic in particular. The the sort of martial wizard um, that it presents is, uh, I think, uh, one of the best things about it. Uh, and it, and he has a lot of fun with it because um, the wizards are kind of unstable i guess is a, is a nice way of putting it 
Yeah. Um, so I think there's like, you know, they start messing with each other and playing magical tricks on each other. And, uh, I, I remember really enjoying that part of it. No, the, and those, those are the, the low level wizards. Those are the petty wizards, right? right? They, they're not the ones who are, who are throwing, uh, uh, you know, army killing magic across the field. They, they get by, by using little tricks. So, and even that, I think that sort of division between hey here are the guys you know on the front lines and here mm-hmm. are the big you know big types I, I think where it loses me is what you were talking about um with the the the, the character um the the narration character kind of having an, an a tough time understanding some of the bigger things that were happening around him and in a lot of cases those bigger things are uh I assume I did not read the rest of the series, but I assume they are for later on in the series. They get more developed. Instead, they're just kind of like presented and then they sort of go away. And like, I remember there was a vampire in the, in the, like a Jaguar vampire or something. Oh, there's some kind of where Jack, Jack, uh, where Jaguar sort of thing. Yeah. But they, I thought they called it a vampire. Anyway, it's an element of the story that kind of pops up a couple of times, but, doesn't necessarily go anywhere, although they spend a lot of time being af- terrified of it. Uh, I feel like that plot thread tied up at the end, but uh, but that doesn't mean it felt tied up for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I put this series in some of the same spaces uh, Malazan, which is that if you can make it through the whole series, it's probably really great. It's just I read this first one and just realized it probably wasn't for me. <laughs> sure. Um, I, with Malazan, um, I've gotten the impression you either hate it or you either love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first Malazan book, I, I, I think does kind of the same things that I had an issue with in, uh, in this one, which is that it presents a lot of things that are important if you keep reading further on. But if you get to the end of the first book and you're like, what was all that about? Well, you're, you're never going to find out because it's, there's none of that context or information in that first book. You really need to keep going to eventually get the big, big picture that well, is just starting to sketch out in the first book. Well, it's funny because I f- feel like the first book is fairly well self-contained. I'm, I don't know whether it was intended all along as a series or whether the first book was a novel and then the author felt like continuing it. Um but it uh, it feels to me like it's fairly well wrapped up, and part of that is because it uh, it is subverting the the story patterns that we know, right? It's giving us a different perspective. It's it's showing things uh, from a more sympathetic perspective, um, and in the end, without without spoiling anything terribly much, yeah, it, it leaves some. Uh, some things open, but I think at least my my feeling is that we are expected to know where that will go based on the stereotypes and tropes that the author played with throughout the book. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't disagree with that. I just. uh, Oh yeah. It wasn't for you. Yeah. As a, as a first book, I like I like to have, a, uh, I, I wish it had been more 
self-contained because there were so many parts of it that I did enjoy, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a good read. Like it's really well written. Mm-hmm. I didn't have trouble getting through it. It's just, I got to the end and I'm like, no, oh, I think I'm done. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that except now we have to fight. <laughs> the war between Dan and Peter. <laughs> Our theme is getting pretty meta, guys. Literary <laughs> criticism never it's time to take sides, all you other people in the podcast. 20 bucks on Peter. Yes. Damn it. I don't know. I am a cat. You're also, <laughs> I thought you were a robot. I can be a robot cat. Why are you stopping me? Oh. <laughs> Listen, I could also be a cat. You don't know. I I mean, I have I have cat presence around me at all times. Maybe well, maybe that that human picture on his profile is just a, a diversion. I do feel pretty nominal most of the time. Just you're sort of vanilla human. That's probably a good vanilla. description of what. I, that's how I like to describe you to people, Daniel. Nominal. <laughs> Why are you describing me to people? All right. <laughs> oh my god. Um, what does our so, advertising look like for this show? So, I don't know. It's just it's just me with a vanilla ice cream <laughs> just going. It's kind of like this. nominal vanilla human. <laughs> it's okay. I described plus two to most of your stats. FBO in podcast. It's nominal. Well, I described Katie as a stalker, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. That's a little harsh. How are you supposed to picture me when you can't see me in the bushes? Oh, damn. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> All right. Does anyone else uh, have any? No one else has read the Black Company. No, maybe? I wanna. I wanna ask you a little question about it, though. Um, yeah, yeah. Because there's sort of a whole interesting element of of war genre, um, not even necessarily in fantasy, but in in real life too, of of the perspective of the war doctors. And mm-hmm. I, I really think it is very interesting that this book had um had the the company's doctor in it. Um, what did that bring to the table? Well, I think in a in an intentional uh, inversion, it took the focus away from the actual fighting. Right, a lot of books describe very closely either uh, the maneuvering in battles or the individual fights where somebody does a fancy sword move and then ducks and then thrusts and then ducks and thrusts and sword moves, fancy dance, woo. Um, And they can go on for pages like that. Um, And this author dispensed with if not all of that, nearly all of that. Um, when there were fights, I think I think the author just wasn't interested in describing them. It was more, if there's a fight, it's it's more of something like, we quickly rousted them. We took uh, one casualty, so I ended up in the corner because it's a first person narration. So I, I, the doctor, ended up in the corner, uh, you know, sewing this cut shut. Um, so we don't really, I mean, we don't revel in the violence. The violence is a thing that happens because sometimes it has to, and then we focus on helping people, uh, or we focus on 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 recording what happened. So does this doctor sort of have any opinion on war? Do they say like this is bad, or do they just kind of go, you know, it's my job? 
it's it's closer to it's my job. Um, there's certainly there's certainly times where the narrator like approaches. Um, I'm not sure if moralizing is the right word, uh, uh, expressing opinions on the state of things. Usually, uh, if he does, it's closer to uh, here's a thing that is regretful, but it's just what happens. Got it. You know, there, there's no, nobody is trying to, he is certainly not trying to overcome uh historical momentum and and you know save the world by stopping the war or anything he's just he is trapped in his little place of it and he makes it clear at least for the the characters that we come to know including him that they're all there because they are running from something they're all all the the characters in the black company are uh damaged in some way not to say that you have to be damage to go to war but um they're all it's it's very clear that you know you don't ask questions about people's past every everyone has has sworn an oath to the company because uh they were leaving something behind mm. etc okay so did you like the book oh i love it <laughs> this might be the third time i read it wow yeah, uh, so i read uh saber by Garth Nix, which is a YA novel, but I found it was suitable for most ages. Yeah, I never considered it YA when I read it. Uh, I just, it, it's just uh, the protagonist is a little younger. She is 18, but um, I guess it reads a little younger. Uh, or, the, or the later books. I think the later books um, follow a 16-year-old protagonist. I cannot remember at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, but, it uh, sometimes get tricky when to determine if it's like a young adult novel or if it's just the author writing from the perspective of a younger character yeah also i think this was written in the 90s if i remember correctly which so i don't think young adult was very prevalent in that time correct me if i'm wrong though no i mean it was very much not a i mean there wasn't that sort of subdivision of uh right how you sell books there, there it was wasn't not a like trend. a YA target yeah yeah, I've read other books by Garth Nix. Like I've read the uh, King Keys to the Kingdom series, which is I loved it as a kid. But um, I haven't reread them, so I don't know if they stand up to me being an adult now. But uh, anyways, so Sabriel is a coming age story of Sabriel, the titular character, learning to become the abhorsent or the uh, as she says, keeping the dead dead and finding those who don't want to go. And uh, the war element, I would say, is her constant fight against death itself and her trying to keep the peace between uh, uh, life and death. And I was going to make a really dumb Avatar reference in the... Um, <laughs> in my review, because I went for an opening line. <laughs> it was really dumb. Uh, I was going to do like a... Uh, a take on the opening, uh, the classic opening of uh, Avatar with like, and then but I the believe Sabriel. Can... Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have it if you want me to read it. Well, now you have well, I'm to. Tempted. You brought it up. Yeah, let me find. But that all that all changed when the dead attacked. Only that have horse and master, uh, master of charter magic and necromancy. Only she can stop the ruthless dead. <laughs> Brilliant. 
Yeah. I love the abhor son. It's just a great, it's mm. a great title. It's a good word. It took me forever how to figure out how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, luckily, I had uh, this time around. I listened to the audiobook, and who is it's narrated by Tim Curry, and that was a pleasure. wow. Yeah, he did the entire series. So okay, that much. I, I I'm not much for listening to my books, but that might be worth it. Yeah, he did a great job. It was really um, a pleasure. Uh, so. It's this is really following Sabriel le- uh, learning about the old kingdom because she was raised in Encelsior, which is another kingdom across the roadway, for reasons that are explained later. Um, but she doesn't understand her native country, and um, it's a, I, what I loved about the series was there was such a line and division between Encelsior and the old king. Um, Encelsior is basically uh, England post-World War One or pre-World War One, like 1920s, I would say, era of technology. But when you get to the Old Kingdom, it's basically just medieval. Everything is just medieval. Technology does not work. And uh, uh, there's this wall where the Encelsior is trying to keep the Old Kingdom people away from Encelsior. And um, it's very interesting they have guns but they also have chain mail and swords because sometimes if the wind's just right the guns will just crap out on them mm, right because it somehow brings over the 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 laws of nature from old king- kingdom yes and like time is different in the old kingdom it's just like the old kingdom lives in its own little bubble and um it was the only thing i really didn't like about it i didn't like the romance that much but i don't like romances in general because most of them i don't eh, are kind of eh, to me why is that i just don't like romances i only have it's just my thing i guess i mean is it because like of the way that they're executed or a lot of you find most ram romances not really earned or is it just you just don't feel like thinking about it i just don't it takes away from the action for me and i like the action better than the mm. romance Sure. Unless um, I like also I like slower burn romances, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, or people working for it or something like that. Right. Or, Instead of the, the burning heart, hot passion you see in a lot of a lot of writing. Yeah, I, I guess that um, like I only read like I've only read like one romance manga and it's so very, very slow burn. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess it's just a me thing. Um. But, uh, and that one, it's kind of, she's a teenager, it's a dude, there. Yep. Uh, Isn't that how most romances are? I wonder why I don't like most romances then. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I also read this one a while back, and I feel like there was a very interesting cat in this book. Yeah, but you have yet to talk. <laughs> yeah. No. Nope, it's not Peter. Peter doesn't want to be Moggett. <laughs> no. Moggett is delightful, and I love him. <laughs> so I do remember him being the highlight. I haven't read this book. Um, what is so highlight-worthy of Moggett? He's a sassy-ass cat. <laughs> okay, so would you say that he's kind of like Salem? Uh, Yes. Actually, yes. Very much like Salem. For sure. And he's a good sidekick kind yeah. of character, right? Yeah. And um, he doesn't, 
he's obligated to help, but he doesn't really want to help sometimes. Yeah, like if, if Sancho Panza was out to uh, really humiliate Don Quixote every <laughs> once in a while, that's that's sort of the, the, the relationship they have with Sancho. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Fickle? Uh, yeah, he's a cat. <laughs> yeah, if I remember, there he has some pretty... Uh, important plot consequence for himself uh, later on in the model, but that's probably pretty big spoilers. But yeah, I mean, if like me, you're drawn to any book that features uh, hilarious cats, then Sabriel's for you. Yeah. Um, also, you can read the second book in the series uh, without reading the first one because the second book is a time skip with a different protagonist. Just putting that out there. Um. But I have a really great quote from the book, which I was very, I, I felt very attached to this quote. Uh, this is Sabriel talking as he's like, feeling like a sh- uh, shambling blanket, blanket shrouded excuse for a human being. I can relate. <laughs> Sometimes I, I'm not nominal, you guys. Sometimes I'm below nominal. It happens. Subnominal. I don't believe it. <laughs> so that was, that quote struck a p- personal chord with me because I, at, after a certain point, I'm not a human being. Well, and you're you're a shambling blanket. Yes. Yeah, I mean you're at university. That's pretty typical. Yeah, yeah burnout is real. It is. Yay! Two more years. <laughs> oh God, I'm so glad I don't ever have to go back to school. I never have to go back. <laughs> I just finished four years. I have to do two more years. Man, that's no, that's no awesome. thanks. I'm happy to stay out of classrooms. The happiest day of my life was skipping my graduation and knowing that I never had to go back. Nice. <laughs> no. Um, no, the, I, I got to say the, the the sort of time bubble element of the Old Kingdom sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, I In the second book, uh, Lirio, they have a better, like, shell-shocked – like difference between uh, I or not shell shock like juxtaposition between the beginning of the book and then like him, uh, the protagonist um, entering the old kingdom and everything just being changing. I just love the idea like that it can affect the world outside of it too. Well, there's something really intriguing about the idea that it that it carries on the wind somehow. Like I've read a lot of things where it's a bubble. It's you kind of treat right. it as a as a constant uh, a radius. It's some sort of physics thing but the idea that it's somehow uh you know like not not even an i don't know an odor or it's particulates or it's even just it's unexplainable it kind of just goes with the wind it's like a permeable shroud rather than like a distinct bubble which i find really fascinating yeah exactly it's it's something engaging about that um in the book itself it was talking about like the there's soldiers on the wall who go out to patrol and they they think they're out there for weeks, and they come back, and they're like, "Nope, you've only been gone for three days." And they um they make a joke about how pay was a hell. Uh huh. R and R has got to be crappy uh, too. What do you mean? I have to go back out there? I've only been back for three days. Yeah, um, and especially they get hazard pay when they're doing uh, patrol, so they are getting stiffed out of money. Mm hmm. Uh, well, that sounds like government the world over. <laughs> uh, I also very much enjoyed the magic system. Um, the way necromancy worked was very interesting because you don't really see magic system being controlled by bells. Mm-hmm. No, not usually, no. 
and I love the different, there's uh, nine different bills that you can use for necromancy. That's really cool. I mean, of course. <laughs> I mean, you can't do necromancy with only eight bells. But what about the secret well, tenth do... bell? Well, technically, necromancers use seven bells, but the abhorson uses nine bells, if I remember correctly. It's just, I believe you. <laughs> it sounds like the, the creators of this were, or the creator, I don't know, um, was very, very creative. Uh, Garth yeah. Nicks. Garth Nix. Garth Nix. I love his stuff. Yeah, that sounds like really unique, really incredible. I like uh, unique magic systems, unique worlds a lot. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. I will take a hit on actual plot and character development just for a unique world setting and magic system, so. Uh, There's the original Abhorson trilogy with Sabriel, Lyriel, and Abhorson, and there's a prequel novel called Clariant, I believe is Clariel, which I didn't read because i got massively spoiled by accident so uh, I, I here's a tip don't look at the last i was looking for the, like the last page number but i looked accidentally. oh no i looked at the acknowledgments and there's a massive story spoiler in the acknowledgments wow and there's that also and there's also a i don't know if it's a direct sequel to abhorson um or a little time skip uh golden hand which i haven't read it, i wasn't just feeling it But the original trilogy, I loved. I read right through them. They're brilliant. I remember quite enjoying them. I just don't remember them terribly well at this moment. Yeah, I don't remember how many of these I've read, but the, yeah, those first couple are really good. Yeah, uh, I think Clario was written in the early two thousands. It was there was a time skip, or there was a long wait period between the Horson and Clario. All right, <laughs> let's make Nick go next. All right. Um, all right. So since we're just going to drop this on me, boom. Uh, <laughs> this month I read uh, actually the the first book from the Witcher series, um, which is obviously you know most people know the video game series with the the success of the third game. Um, now this is the series that that inspired the uh, the video games, right? Yeah. These aren't post. Yes, the video the, game. the books were written first. Um, right. actually my understanding, I, I haven't hundred percent fact checked this, but somebody who is a much bigger fan of the series, um, told me that the author initially wrote, um, wrote basically some adventures of the Witcher going on these hunts and like, like in the game, essentially the gameplay wrote little mm-hmm. short story adventures of what being a Witcher is like going out, slaying monsters for coin and stuff and entered it into a short story contest and won. And he wasn't planning on making a series out of this or, or continuing it at all. Hmm. And uh, but because it was like you know people really liked it, he decided, okay, well I'll start making a series. And um, the series itself isn't really about the Witcher. And even in the video game, you can kind of tell it's he's he's sort of a character. He's the perspective character, but he's not uh, what it's about. It's about this girl Siri. Um. And so these books follow Siri. Does she tell you how to get places or tell you what (laughs) words mean? No, it's spelled a little different. It's not that Siri. Um, Okay. It's short for Cirilla. Um, But yeah, so... Ah. um, One thing I will say is just like in the games, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of sad because it's a pretty good series. And I think that most people know it from the games instead of from the books. Um, 
but just like in the games, I will say it's um, the war is very much present, but it's it's more of a setting than a direct part of the conflict. Um, and the main reason for that is because witchers, by trade or by rule, I should say, um, witchers as a rule don't get involved in wars. They try to stay out of it and they try to stay neutral. Um, but the the war impacts the witcher's job. There are these types of creatures that are called like necrophages, um, which basically, you know, when there are fields of dead bodies, these creatures come out to eat the dead bodies. So witchers often get called to go slay those monsters. So, um, and it also obviously just affects like, you know, tragedy will create like, you know, ghosts and spirits for them to fight, all sorts of things. So the war is pretty important to the story, but it is more of a setting than a actual direct conflict. So there was one point in particular in this. So the story follows Siri as a, a young kid, essentially. Um, she basically was supposed to be of royal lineage, and um, her family was pretty much all killed as a result of of, of a war. And um, Geralt essentially, Geralt the Witcher essentially adopts her and trains her as a witcher. And there are a lot of people who are coming after her, trying to catch her, and Geralt's basically trying to protect her. So that's sort of the, the thing. Unlike the game where Ciri's like fully grown in the third game, at least, um, she's a child in this, so she's very young, doesn't really know much about the world, and um, it's actually pretty fun to follow a character that young, and the way that they look at things is always more interesting, you know. So, because the character is so young, um. Would you consider this, like the other one, a little more in the young adult no. or not no, no, at no, all? No, no. because no. it's not a it's not from her perspective. It's sort of a, a third person point of view. Um, so she's not the only main character, obviously, and there's a lot of um. One thing about the Witcher series, I will say that I'm not really a fan of in general is a lot of sexual stuff, um. So there, it's, there's a lot of, like, innuendo going on and, and things like that. Um, but, again, it's also kind of funny because it's from the point of view of a child at times. Well, let me ask you a question yes. because I am I have, I have experience with these video games. I, I don't think I ever played one to completion. But uh, one thing I've never totally understood, like, are the Witchers humans? Yeah, so that's a good, good point. So the Witchers are actually mut- uh, essentially mutated humans. So... Um, they're only men. Women don't become witchers, but Ciri's obviously a girl, so they train her as a witcher, but they never make her a witcher because you actually have to undergo these mutations. They actually, like, give you these chemicals and make you go through these trials, and I think, like, 90% of the young boys who would go through this these trials die, so only, like, 10% of them actually don't die and become witchers. Um, but yeah, they, they basically have these mutations that make them live longer, they're stronger, they're faster, they're better fighters... Um, but at this point in the story, the, the breed of witchers as a, as a people is, is dying because there are no, there was a big battle, I guess. And there are no witchers left alive who know how to do the trials anymore. So they can't create new witchers. Huh? So they're sort of a dying breed at this point, but they live a long time. So it's not like they're the, the ones who are around are not in any danger of dying of old age anytime soon for the most part. It was also by understanding that, um, monsters in the world are also slowly dying 
I didn't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised. That makes uh, sense. I read the first. I read the first two um, short story novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the first and, book in the series. I should mention that's a good point. There are two short story novels that come before it. Uh, yeah, I would recommend reading those two before the first book. Yeah. Hmm. So. Uh, I just didn't like the over sexual. Uh, Gar- I understand from Geralt's um, point of view, but it was very descriptive and certain female body parts a lot. Yeah, that I mean, that is always one of the things that I don't like in. Generally speaking, I don't like it unless it's really necessary. And it's very, very rare in TV or in, in books or any any story where it's actually really necessary. You know? You don't you don't want to read about boobs. It, I'll tell you what, if it's necessary. It was describing mermaid boobs. I'm like, I don't care what color her boobs <laughs> are. Yeah, things like I'm not well, being critical. I, I'm agreeing with you, but they're different colored? They're green, and then the slightly, and then the areolas are darker green. This is important knowledge, right? So yeah, I'm gonna categorize that and put it somewhere safe for later. I feel like there and, probably are very, very rare circumstances where where it is necessary, but I really am having a hard time picturing any. You know, it, it's something that always bothered me about Game of Thrones, both the show and probably more so in the show, but also in the books. You know, all the seemingly unnecessary sex scenes. Yeah, I mean, sh- it's definitely the shock value on TV. It's a whole different monster because it's literally just to get people to watch, you know, but even the books have a lot of description that I just find like very just weird. It's just, you know, I don't get it. And this is so that is one of the, the things that I would say I don't obviously like about this book, but um. So there is one major point in, in talking about war that I kind of want to get to with this book because um, at one point, as Ciri's getting a little bit older, they decide to, you know, they're, they're keeping her safe, like I said, away from the war and away from people who are trying to get her. Um, but they have to start traveling out and um, they have to bring her basically away from the safety. And um, there's sort of this battle going on um, there are a lot of wars, but one of them is sort of devolving into a racial war, which is a whole topic that we really didn't even get into. But essentially a racial war between, like, the elves, and in addition to the elves, also the gnomes and the dwarves to a lesser extent, um, versus humans. So basically any of these minority groups seen as others who get um, treated differently by the humans who predominantly are ruling these lands, they all begin to sort of revolt. And they create a group called the Scoyatel, which in Elvish means squirrels. And they're basically attacking the humans from the trees and escaping before the humans can catch them. And so there's this sort of um, battle going on. And Siri, who's now old enough, she's been trained with a weapon. And, you know, for the first time, she feels like I can actually do something. You know, these people are killing people and I want to stop them. And Geralt, who always tells her we have to remain neutral right she sort of confa- uh, conflates neutrality with indifference in this point she's saying why are you being indifferent like people are dying if i have a sword i can defend people and so there's this really interesting really cool part where Geralt takes her to this um these ruins these elven ruins and you see a statue of a female elf and he explains to her that the last time the humans and the elves got in a conflict um all of the elves wanted to just sort of retreat and move to a different place and just sort of let bygones be bygones and 
there was one female elf who sort of roused up all of the young elves to come back and fight the humans. And he says, and what happened is they all died. All of the young elves died. And only the young elves can reproduce. And uh, basically, it created this sort of lost generation, maybe akin to the real-life lost generation from both world wars. A whole generation of elves gone, unable to reproduce. And uh, and he says, you know, basically he teaches them this lesson at this point that being neutral doesn't mean being indifferent. In fact, like, our neutrality is compassion, because if we got involved, we would be killing these elves. Does that end up being the uh, kind of the the authorial perspective? Um, because Geralt is the 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 wiser, more experienced, worldly mentor character. So is is what he's saying effectively the authorial message? One thing that I find really interesting about the series, I'm going to answer your question this way: um, is Siri has many mentors, and the story is about her essentially um but she has many mentors and a lot of them have different opinions on a lot of things so i I would say Geralt is one of her strongest mentors and that is his opinion but i think she has other mentors who would probably disagree with that to a degree well sure but Geralt is also the the point of view character right i there is no real point of view character it's like third person perspective they just kind of describe what's happening to these characters if that makes sense. So okay. Daryl is sure, one of sure. the main characters. Siri is one of the main characters. Okay. So I, I think to a degree, yes. Um, I think some other uh, some of the other characters would say, well, you need to get involved in war to stop it. To get to the same goals. You know what I mean? Of, right. Of protecting I mean, I'm, you know, I'm curious because I find myself agreeing more with Siri in this case. Um. That, you know, it's it's the old uh, adage, what is it, the only uh, thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing? Right. It, it is a it is a conflict, and you, it, they end up actually having to fight a little bit, too, which is sort of, I, I think the sort of perspective of Geralt is that we don't want to go out of our way to kill these people, and if we have to, it's, it's kind of a... Tr- it's kind of a tragedy, you know, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't view it as like, oh, we're saving these people. We should view it as this is tragic. Like no matter what, it's tragic. Somebody's dying and that's bad, you know? Yeah, I think it's a good sign in books or I guess most storytelling when uh, characters have different viewpoints that both feel compelling or can feel compelling to the readers because mm-hmm. it, it just it feels more real we all know that life is shades of gray not right not black and white one thing i also will say is um Geralt is kind of hard to read at times because witchers are notoriously after they go through these trials and these chemical changes they, they sort of are known to lose not lose emotion but they don't expressiveness yeah, yeah they don't express their emotions very well afterwards they kind of are very just neutral and calm and you know so he is kind of hard to read at times. But I only read the first book. This is a pretty long series, and I'm excited to dig in deeper. So I will also say if you guys like The Witcher games, I think you will like the series. Um, uh, I heard the games were described to me was like um, 
a fan fiction to this <laughs> And I would say that's pretty accurate in a way. It is like a sequel fan fiction. It doesn't go... The games don't go into the story. It's um, afterward, I guess. Yeah, they sort of touch upon, like, notes of the story, but they don't really actually... They're not the story. They're not canon. Part of that is because the games wanted to give you choice in how you play Geralt, but the books, mm. Geralt is a very certain way. Yeah, and the Netflix show is following the books rather than right. the game. Right, right. I'm kind of excited for that show. Uh, that might be an unpopular opinion. No, I'm, I want to give it a chance. I'm excited to, to watch it. I hope it's good. It looks like that a lot of the people involved really care about the series. Mm. So... I'm hopeful. Yeah, me too. So, uh, Nick, this series is, I want to say, not originally in English. It's Polish, yeah, a, right? Yeah, that's correct. The author is Polish. Did, the, did it feel like the translation was spot on? It wasn't tricky in any way? No, I thought it was a very up? good translation. Like, it wasn't just like... I mean, I don't often read books translated to English. So, but it, it felt... I, I didn't even notice. I guess that's the way to put it. I, I could barely notice that it was translated. Nice. So... Cool. Uh, only the only translation thing that I noticed would be like Roach is not talking about like uh, his name not named after a cockroach it's named after a fish. Okay, yeah, that's I didn't know huh. that. Oh, because that's a Polish language pun sort of joke, right? Um, I do not remember. <laughs> I just know it's like the original Polish is like based off the fish, not the cockroach. <laughs> right. Okay. Cool. I'll have to put that one on the to be read list. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Although I, I think start with the short story collections. Is that right? The that's what was recommended. I I uh, the I really enjoyed the last wish. Uh, the sword of destiny was kind of meh. It, it kind of went overboard with the over sexualization to me for me. Uh, yeah. I would say I would have preferred to read the short stories first, but for this um, topic of war, I figured you know m my girlfriend was telling me that this one's really good for that. Um, that's fair. But there are definitely reading this i could tell there was some backstory that i was missing yeah um uh i totally understand that this it's it's not any like if you played the game it's the exact same way where there's lots of backstory that you're missing but it's pretty easy to pick up what happened um and it's yeah, the same it, way so you don't need to but i think it would definitely enhance the read that is correct so that's it for me <laughs> i say it's daniel's turn not me. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That was very dramatic. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to step my game up from vanilla human. I'm going to be <laughs> vanilla human with, vanilla sprinkles. with sprinkles. Yeah. You're going to be also, the nominalist. But you're also a Ghostbuster, so you're a little more than uh, human. Yeah, but I'm probably like not the regular Ghostbusters. I'm like the tax attorney Ghostbuster at the end of the second one. <laughs> The Rick Moranis character, yeah. <laughs> you just say uh, there's a ghost there, and you don't actually fight it. Yeah, I'm the ghost locator. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they have ghost hunters. I guess that's the thing. Oh no, I'm like a, I'm like those plumbers. Oh man, <laughs> it's, it's not as cool. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, the book I read was called uh, Shrouded Loyalties by Reese Hogan. And uh, I guess I put it on Front Street that I am uh, acquainted with this author. And uh, she did give me a uh, uh, an early copy of this book to read. So that was actually pretty cool. That um, is cool. 
yeah, we met. We're we're friends from the uh, writing excuses retreat, which I uh, was able to attend a couple of years ago, and uh, nice. had a bunch of cool authors on that. And hopefully, I'll get some more freebies uh, pretty soon. But uh, this one, "Shrouded Loyalties" by Reese Hogan. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is straight up a war book, probably more than I think I've heard any of you guys, uh, any of the other books we've talked about. This one is directly re- related, where the war and is tied intrinsically to the plot um it's about mia blackwood who is a a soldier on a submarine and the submarine has been given new technology that allows it to essentially travel through an alternate dimension so that uh uh, it can then exit that alternate dimension anywhere else on the world so they use it as like a a travel substitute so they're able to like kind of teleport uh around the world in this submarine and uh it's helping them fight uh, a war, but uh, when they use it, it turns out that this other dimension is not unpopulated. There are kind of cosmic horrors that live in this place, and Mia is attacked by one of these during one of the the shroudings and is marked by these creatures. And the story is kind of her having to come to terms with both what it means to be marked by these creatures and also. Uh, you know, coming to terms with the, her family's place in the war, her people's, you know, why they're at war at all. Um, she has a brother who has become uh, seduced by a, a spy from the other side. Uh, and it, it's, I, I really, really enjoyed this, mostly because uh, when I typically read war stories, they are, they lose, you know, we've kind of talked about it. They, they sometimes lose the character thread and they pull back too far and you, you're looking at just like a, a big war story and, and they focus on the war at the expense of the character. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So in this one, I felt like the characters are such a key part and they are exploring constantly the, the reasons for the war and, and um, the things that are keeping the war going that uh, it just did a really great job. And, and um, you know, Mia as a character uh, I thought was, was pretty good, but she had there's a there's a third sort of point of view character um, whose name is Holland, who has maybe my favorite part of the book. And uh, it's tough because Holland's struggle in the story is is kind of spoilery uh, to get into. But, uh, you know, this character is, you know, one that is struggling with personal identity, trying to understand, you know, uh, because. Uh, well, I'll say what isn't a spoiler is that Holland is a spy for the opposite side. So he's sort of against Mia, even though they work together uh, and Mia saves his life a few times. But as a spy, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to come to terms with feelings that he has where, you know, he actually likes some of the things that, uh, you know, the government on this side does like his government doesn't respect women um, even though they are the much larger, more technically advanced um, society, they you know they they have this kind of horrible character flaw essentially to their society that um, he's he's struggling to to overcome and and understand as you know his country, which is very much seems to be the aggressor, starts to absorb the country that he's in spying on Mia with. So you know it's it's that kind of very easy to understand, easily relatable character story wrapped up in this kind of crazy 
techno fantasy, you know, with going in alternate dimensions and fighting weird tentacle monsters sometimes, uh, you know, fantasy story. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it, and it, it is a really good mix. Like it doesn't spend too much time in one or the other. It doesn't ever feel like, you know, the real story is the war story and the, and, you know, the the cosmic horror is kind of sprinkled on top. You know, it's not. There are these two kind of very competing elements that blend really well together to to make it an excellent plot. Very cool. So, I mean, I, I, again, I, I almost don't want to talk too much more about it because uh, I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> the, and, and it can be, it, it has a lot of surprises. So, you know, any plot details that I really talk about can be spoilery, but, um, I do think, um, it's, uh, you know, it might go on like my top five for the year. So far, it's a really excellent book. Uh, when does it come out? So let's see, this episode is the September episode. So I think it's probably already out, uh, as you are listening to this. And when, where can people I, buy it? I believe it's out now. For those of you that are here with me in the recording, yeah, you can find it anywhere uh, that you find your books, bookstores and Amazon. Uh, I think it's already out. All right. What was it called again? Uh, that's Shrouded Loyalties by Reese Hogan. Very, very cool. Yeah. We should probably get in the habit of doing that, <laughs> repeating the names of these books. That's right. That is yeah. Especially for um, authors who I'm sure would really appreciate it, such as this one. All right. Mine was pretty fast. Speedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Okay. I guess I will go if we have nothing else to say about Daniel's book. <laughs> um, let me uh, apologize and excuse myself. I'm sorry that I have to go. It's fine. Oh, I, I am disappointed to miss Katie's book. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, You're going to miss out on dinosaurs. On the bright side, I... you can listen to it on the podcast. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I do listen to the podcast. I just hate much out of my voice because I sound like an idiot. You'll get over that. I okay. also hate my voice because I also sound like an idiot. I make my wife listen to it and critique me. So everybody say hi to my wife. Hello. Hi, Hello. Daniel's wife. Hi, Dan's wife. I, f- I feel like she has a name. It's Ju- it's Julie. Hi Julie. Julie is her Hi. name. Hi Julie. Hi Dan's Julie. <laughs> All right, I do have to go. All right, Peter. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Ninja vanish. He's gone. Okay. That was pretty He's impressive. Gone forever. <laughs> All right, Katie, the floor is yours. All right. So the book I did this month was The Dinosaur Lords by Victor Milan. So basically you have um, a few different characters that are the main characters. Um, like how you have, um, so there's Rob Corrigan, who is a dinosaur master, meaning that he just, he's kind of like, like a stableman almost for dinosaurs. Like, he takes care of them for the lords and the knights. Um, But he is the main point of view in the opening scene, which is in the middle of a battle. Um, And it it caused a little confusion to me at first because it was mostly just a whole bunch of name dropping. Like, you have, oh, Rob Corrigan, you know, and then, oh, no, here comes Voivod 
Carl Bogomirsky, and then Was now incoming. Name? Yeah, um, Voivod is actually the title. His title of like, it's like a noble title. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we also have um, Count Jamais. He's his main part of the book. He's uh, the Imperial Champion, Lord of the Flowers, and Commander of the Legendary Companions. Um, so you you get all these name dropping, all these titles, and I enjoyed the beginning a lot more during my second read through of the book. As with most books, I actually enjoy it more the second time. So you have these characters that are, they're mostly paired throughout the book. Like there's a, a princess, Melodia. She's paired with um, Jamais, who they're actually like basically betrothed, but it isn't official. Then we have um, the Voivod, Carl, and um, Rob Corrigan. So they, they never actually all four get together in the book, but it gets very close at the beginning and very close at the end. It kind of alludes to maybe there the two storylines will converge in the next book. I'm excited about that. Yeah, that would frustrate me. I'd be like, they're so close. No. Yeah, it was like that, like right at the end, they're like, oh, no, you have to go to this place where these other guys are. And then the fourth character is like, oh no, should I go there too and be with them? And it it gets really close, but also so far. Yeah. So are the, how is it treating the dinosaurs? I mean, are they intrinsic like to the story or is it just kind of, hey, this is a normal fantasy story, but dinosaurs are. It's kind of, it's kind of like the second one, like, oh, yeah, dinosaurs. We use them as, you know, beasts of burden. There are war mounts, even though there are horses, too. Um, they they use them as, like, food supply, their pests. And they they don't get used enough, I feel, in this book. But maybe... Maybe they'll get a little more screen time, as it were, in the next two. Uh, how intelligent are the dinosaurs? They're mostly just treated like dopey animals, except the there's one who is kind of a main character. She gets a few viewpoint chapters. Um, her name is Shira, and she's um, she's an Allosaurus. Which we all know what that is, obviously. It's a kind of like a T-Rex. It's a s smaller version of a meat-eating dinosaur. Um, she is trying to find her, air quotes, mother, who is Carl Bogomirsky. Wait, his, the mother is Carl? Yeah, because uh, she imprinted on him. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That's so funny. as she was hatching, he just happened to be there slaying her actual mother. Oh God! <laughs> um, how different is her? How different are her POV characters? Is, is it, does it feel like a human, even though she's not human? Um, she kind of feels like like a child. 
how she's like, oh, I'm hungry, but mother says that I can't eat the two legs, meaning humans, but I need to find my mother. And it it's kind of sad because I want her to, you know, find her mom. It's so cute. <laughs> so the, but, but the Allosaurus seems to get to understand, if not, if it's not able to communicate, but it can kind of understand human language or? She actually never, from her viewpoint, it never shows her with other humans. She's only, you know, by herself trying to find Carl. Ah, okay. That's that's an interesting take. I did not, I did not think this story would have that kind of element. I didn't either, but I, I loved it. I just, for some reason, I just strongly associate with this dinosaur. <laughs> It's probably the scales. Uh, I feel like that's only natural. Yeah. How do you think they played the war element? Was it more like a uh, glorification? I, I don't like the word glorification, but like more, uh, you know what I mean? And, or, or the war is hell or something like that. Um, so thank you for bringing me back to our topic because I <laughs> was going way out. Um, so there's the different elements, like we get the viewpoints from a foot soldier, from, you know, um, the commander of the companions, you know, as a mounted knight, he's like, oh, battle, we must do this for glory. And, you know, if there's no honor, we still have to do it, but it'll be a little more, eh, not as righteous. So he's all for king and country type guy. Yeah, like he actually has to lead this war that he doesn't want to be a part of, but he has to because he was told. He feels like it's his duty. Yep. Um, We also get um, the Voivod's um, viewpoint where he's training in new recruits that are from a pacifist country. Uh, That part, they're they obviously are like, war is hell. We don't want this here, but we have to because these invaders are trying to take us over. But we still need we still need to protect our homes and it gets pretty bloody. Like grimdark kind of bloody, like too much. I wouldn't say too much, but like there's not very many actual battle sequences, I think. But just the fact that when it is, it gets a little graphic. Like, I mean, there's dinosaurs, so are we talking about people being devoured kind of constantly? Well, not constantly. <laughs> oh, okay. But a, a primary feature of the battle is who 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 and what part of them is is torn apart and yeah there's even one part where there's um someone is sentenced to death by the king uh the executioner is actually just a tyrannosaurus rex oh that's badass kind of (laughs) i really like that kind of mostly (laughs) They they could have used a little more dinosaurs in that capacity. Like, you know, this one has a job. This one, you know, 
otherwise there was another dinosaur who had a pretty decent role. Her name was Little Nell, and she was an Ineosaurus. And <laughs> oh, I just love these dinosaurs. So, oh, I wanted to ask you then: um, Were the dinosaurs viewed as more of a weapon or a casualty in terms of the war? Several times it when mentioning the dinosaur knights, um, you know, those who ride dinosaurs into battle, they it's always mentioned that their greatest weapon was their mount. Mm-hmm. And um Jamais, he was even like he cares about his dinosaur Camellia as like a little sister. But if he, when he was riding a horse, he was like, oh, yeah, this dumb beast that I have to ride. Oh, that's an interesting juxtaposition there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when, when the dinosaurs... Uh, I'm assuming dinosaurs probably die as a result of war here. And are, are they... Is it tragic? Yeah, because not only are they, you know, these majestic, big, beautiful creatures, they're expensive, Oh, so it's tragic on the wallet. Yeah, okay. yeah. Got it. <laughs> I like that. I really like the horse thing. The the thing about the horse you just said that was so yeah. often they they portray the horses like you know a knight's like a uh, best friend kind of thing almost. Or yeah, that's like how they're treating you know their dinosaur mount. But he doesn't prefer horses. He prefers his dinosaur. I'm trying to picture how they get up on these dinosaurs because dinosaurs are big. They have an arming squire help them up. I was just picturing a ladder. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's more like the, you know, link your hands and then hoist them up. The human ladder. (laughs) Yeah. Of that poor squire. So do you think you're going to keep reading the series? I bought the next one yesterday. Nice. <laughs> I actually bought the third one first unintentionally because I was just in a store and I'm like, oh, I like dinosaurs. Ooh, it says princess in the title. Hmm. Might as well get it. <laughs> uh, I wish books did, did have a little thing that said, this is book three. Stop being dumb. I don't think you should call yeah, your it didn't say dumb. it like on the <laughs> it didn't say it like on the outside cover at all and now looking at the second book um the only spot that I see anything about it not being a first book is in little tiny print here it says the dinosaur knights is the second in Victor Milan's lush exotic tale about knights knights riding dinosaurs I do hate it when books oh. don't have a number on the side binding Yeah I think they're perfectly happy to accept the additional sales that uh, Katie offers by unintentionally not buying the correct book. <laughs> I've talked about this before, but the Air series by Cinderella and Dima is the worst with that. Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's, that's a no-go for me. But the first book is so good. And then I accidentally read the second book because it was a gift. Accidentally read the book. <laughs> Okay, it was given to me by my mother at camp. And I was just like, I'll read this because like, I'm bored. And it was like, I'm confused. Yeah, I think she was picturing that you like tripped and fell and accidentally read every single page on your way down. Yep. Yep. 
<laughs> you landed on the book so hard, the knowledge just flit into your body. I hate when that happens. <laughs> or when you sleep on a book and it just uh, os- uh, you learn through osmosis. Uh, osmosis. Yeah. I wish that really worked. <laughs> Same. I would sleep on my textbooks. Well, before Rachel starts talking about schooling in, uh, <laughs> I think we did it. Is this another podcast? Comp- That's yeah. a podcast. Right. Thank you for listening to our podcast this month. Um, we've had me, Katie, uh, Dan, Nick, Rachel, and Peter. Thanks. You can follow us on our individual Twitters, and you can find our reviews on TooManyThoughtsMedia.com. So long. Bye.